And I would like you to open your Bibles to Exodus, Exodus chapter 24. And if you can, would you stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 24. And let's read verses 3 through 8. Or 3 through 11. Here's the word of the Lord, Exodus chapter 24, starting verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules or judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on, on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadav, Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as it were a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for, for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Please be seated. O Lord our God, how majestic is your name. And we pray that your majestic name would be made known to us through your word. Help us to behold you. Help us to see you. And as we behold you, I pray there will be change from glory to glory. Help me to be faithful. Help me to be clear. And help the congregation to be faithful, attentive, sober-minded. Pray your blessing upon the preaching. Pray your blessing on the Lord's Supper that we are going to partake. And we pray your blessing upon other churches that are meeting right now, Lord. Be with your people. We need you. We need the light of the gospel shining in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A few, few weeks, I would say last month, there was a massive volcanic explosion in Tonga. Do you remember that? And that was powerful. It affected so many places throughout the whole world. One scientific article said the following about the volcanic explosion. The powerful underwater volcanic eruption that blanketed the island nation of Tonga with ash and sent tsunami waves across the world also caused ripples in the Earth's ionosphere. When the Hunga Tonga, Hunga Hapai, that's the name there, <laughs> The kids were laughing so hard when they said that. <laughs> Erupted on January 15, 2022. It unleashed a violent explosion with the equivalent force of 4 to 18 megatons of TNT. This explosion produced an acoustic shock wave that was strong enough to perturb the ionosphere, that is the out outer layer of the atmosphere that starts about 50 to 56 and for the rest of the world, 80 to 90 kilometers above Earth's Earth surface and contains electrons ionized by the sun's energy. That's how powerful the eruption was. The rippling effect of this eruption could be detected throughout much of the whole globe. North, south, east, west. So many places, even the coast here, the west coast was affected by the volcanic eruption. And I think about the Mosaic Covenant. It's very similar. 
the fire, the smoke of God's covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai provided such an eruption of God's revelation that its effect can be detected and felt throughout the whole story of the Bible. The rippling effect of the Mosaic Covenant is so powerful that touches every single other area of the drum of redemption. So, for example, all the following books of the Scriptures cannot make sense apart from the Mosaic Covenant. So, you think about Le Leviticus right after, he's following after Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's all impossible to understand without the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus. And then after that, we have the historical books, but if you're looking at the, the, the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew canon, you'd see that this is the earlier prophets from Joshua to Kings. And from Joshua to Kings, you cannot understand the whole history apart from what took place with the Mosaic Covenant taking possession of the land under Joshua, life in the land through Samuel, and then kings leading to exile from the land as the curse of the covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Or the latter prophets, you think about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the book of the twelve minor prophets. These prophets, they serve as the authorized, inspired, prophetic interpretation of Israel's history under the Mosaic covenant. They serve, serving as God's covenant officials, as covenant lawyers, prosecuting the Lord's covenant lawsuit against his unfaithful people, Israel. So you cannot understand the prophetic body of writings apart from the Mosaic Covenant. What judgment are they bringing upon? Why are they rebuking Israel if you don't know that it's flowing from this Mosaic Covenant? Or even the other books that we call... Uh, the poetic books or the wisdom books of the Bible. Even Job. You think about Job. Job was written most probably before, earlier than the Mosaic Covenant. But there is a reason where it's placed in the canon. It's to help people understand life under the covenant. Suffering under the covenant. Think about the books of uh, Proverbs. Proverbs is a commentary on the Mosaic Covenant. Life under the Mosaic Covenant. It's a commentary on the book of Deuteronomy. That's the book of Proverbs. About the other books. Think about Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel. All these books are books related to the life in exile. Because they broke the covenant. So how do we live in exile after we broke the Mosaic Covenant? So you see how the rippling effect of the Mosaic Covenant affects all the rest of the Bible. The, the life of Jesus in the body of the New Testament writings make no sense apart from the Mosaic Covenant. Thus we see how loud and impactful the reverberations of this covenant is to the rest of God's revelation. Okay, It's very important to understand this covenant here. The outline you're going to be following is last Lord's Day, and we are going to get to Exodus 19. We're going to start here in Exodus 19. And now we will not have time to cover Deuteronomy 29, but I will send you my notes, and we, you can read, and if you have any questions, you can let me know. <clears throat> Just as a review before we reach Exodus 19, remember, the Mosaic Covenant is found primarily in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is following after what? Genesis, yes. And you've got to understand the flow of Genesis. People farther and farther from the Lord, less and less knowledge of God, away from His presence, ignorance of who God is, <clears throat> and this covenant with Moses and Israel in the book of Exodus is God's first step in recovering what was lost in Eden. So we saw that the book of Exodus is divided primarily in two parts. The restoration of the knowledge of Yahweh and then the restoration of the presence of Yahweh. And that's so important to understand the Mosaic Covenant. Because that's what God is doing through this covenant. He wants other nations to know Him through Israel and to dwell in His presence. And we saw Exodus chapter 15. And you can look there in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 15. That's the hymn, the song of Moses, right after they crossed the sea 
And remember that the, this song of Moses is divided in two parts, just like the book of Exodus, the knowledge of who the Lord is and then the presence of the Lord. And in Exodus 15, we start getting ready for the rest of the book of Exodus in verses 13 and 17. So in verse 13, Exodus 15, Moses says, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them by your strength to where? Your holy abode. You will bring them in and plant them on your what? Mountain. Now turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Where are we in this story? Geographically. Mount Sinai. So you arrive at the mountain that God promised to bring his people in, to plant them. We are in Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19. And much of Exodus 19 going forward until Numbers 10 is going to be all around Mount Sinai. And especially, I would say especially Exodus 19 through 24, that's the heart of the ceremony. That's where God is making the covenantal ceremony with Israel. Chapters 19 through 24. So that's the covenantal ceremony. The covenant being inaugurated in these chapters. But it's fascinating because as you work through these chapters uh, in Exodus, especially as Israel is in Mount Sinai, as you are reading, there is no way but you hear echoes of creation and the Garden of Eden. So a lot of what's taking place at Sinai is taking us back to the Garden of Eden, to creation itself, reminding us that this covenant is flowing from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So, for example, <clears throat> in creation we have the six days. Then in Sinai we hear that Moses was six days with the Lord. Then there's the seventh day, there's the seventh day when Moses and God together. We have the tree of life. Then we have the Torah that according to the rest of the Bible is very similar to the tree of life. Provides life to the people of Israel. And for those who are trying to take notes, I'm going to move fast today. So <laughs> I will send you my notes and you can write down. So you have access to God in creation, and then in Sinai, for the first time, you have access to God. You have ten times, and God said, at Sinai, you have the ten words of God. You have the spirit and the construction of the cosmos as God's temple. You go to Sinai, and you have the spirit helping those men, enabling those men to build a temple. You have order through words, and then you have at Sinai, order through words. So as Bernard Och, he says... At Sinai, God has once again set the world in order. The outline is simple, as if you're thinking about chapters 19 through 24 as the covenant ceremony. You have chapter 19, the background of the covenant, and then in Exodus 20, you have the ten words, and then in Exodus 21 through 23, you have the judgments or the rules, and then in chapter 24, we have the covenant being ratified, the ceremony. So, let's go to Exodus 19. We need to move fast here. <clears throat> and says, in Exodus 19, verse 1, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. And many scholars believe that as you're placing the time frame here, what we have, the arrival at Sinai and the giving of the law, the Torah, the covenant, is right on Pentecost. It's the feast that later will be called Pentecost. That's when they arrive at Mount Sinai. So, you think about Pentecost, this first Pentecost taking place as the Lord just redeemed them through the Passover. And now He's giving them His Torah, giving them a covenant a dwelling with them, and you apply that to the new covenant pattern, it's very similar as we have the Passover leading to the Pentecost where the Spirit comes, a new Torah in our hearts, and the temple of God with the church. Uh, 
In Exodus 19, they arrive at Mount Sinai as the promise the Lord, that the Lord had spoken to Moses. So in Exodus 3.12, we read the Lord promising Israel. He says, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you, Moses, when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve or worship God on this mountain. And Moses is on Mount Horeb, that's the same as Mount Sinai. So God had promised, I will bring you and these people to the same mountain where I'm revealing myself to you, and they shall worship me here. So as we come to Exodus 19, that's the fulfillment of that promise in Exodus chapter 3. Mount Sinai is, is extremely important for the rest of the, the biblical narrative, the biblical theology. God, the Lord is called the God of Sinai in Psalm, Psalm 68. Israel remains at Sinai for about 11 years, 11 months, sorry, it's almost one year. They are there for 11 months. And think about how much of the Torah, the first five books, cover this time at Mount Sinai. So from Exodus 19 until Numbers chapter 10, I believe, it's all at the foot of Mount Sinai. That's how important this mountain is. Stephen Dempster, he writes, Sinai is, the, is central to the Torah. The narrative is virtually suspended. It's as if there is a break right there as you arrive at Sinai. It's at Sinai that the Lord establishes a whole package with Israel, covenant, Torah, and tabernacle, all together giving to Israel. And then you think about covenant, Torah, tabernacle. You think about the tabernacle. Inside the tabernacle, we have the Ark of the what? Covenant. And inside of the Ark of the Covenant, we have a copy of the Torah. So these three things together for the people of Israel so they can dwell with God. Uh, Exodus 9, 3. In verse 3, you can look in your Bibles. Here we start a fascinating aspect of Moses as the mediator going up and down the mountain. I can remember now how many times Moses alone goes up and down the mountain serving as the mediator. And remember the question, after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the mountain of God, the, the, the exile from God's place, the question that became as, who shall ascend the mount of the Lord? And here we see that Moses and Moses alone can ascend. So he's taking uh, a row of a new Adam, a new Noah, a new Abraham, ascending the mountain of the Lord to be with him. Verse 4, it's a beautiful verse in, in chapter 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. I, I, I. Sometimes people say that the Mosaic Covenant is a covenant of works. Look at that. I, I, I. Just like with Abraham. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will give you this land. And in this verse, you have the outline, the movement of the whole book of Exodus. Redemption from the Egyptian. What I did to Egypt. How I carried you on eagles' wings. Guidance and care on the way to the mountain. And then how I brought you to myself. That's the covenant at Sinai. The language in verse 4 is clear that Israel has done nothing. The Lord did everything. That's very important. Israel did nothing. The Lord did everything. I carried you. I did. I destroyed Egypt. I carried you. And I brought you where? To myself. Remember, that's the theme of the Bible. Man dwelling with God in his presence. How I brought you to myself. The goal of redemption is worship and fellowship in God's presence. So one scholar says, The Lord did not deliver Israel for her own sake. Henceforth, to live independently, like so many Christians believe, right? Oh, Jesus saved me. I do whatever I want with my life. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Where is he at? He's with his people. You've got to be with his people. So he says, the Lord did not deliver Israel for her own sake. Henceforth, to live independently, but rather for relationship with him, with Israel's physical destination. While Israel's physical destination remains the land of Canaan, their ultimate destination is the Lord Himself. Amen? 
One other scholar, he makes a very powerful comment here. He says, Kenneth Turner, he says, The covenant at Sinai commenced not with a code of conduct, but with a declaration of Yahweh's gracious election and salvation of Israel. Unlike a contract, which is driven by a list of rules and conditions, a covenant is about a relationship, a personal commitment between two covenant partners. In response to the gracious redemption and in the light of the amazing mission, Israel declared unreserved commitment to Yahweh. Verse 8. Before the legal stipulations were given in chapters 20 through 23, obedience to the law would therefore be a demonstration of such allegiance, revealing a heart of gratitude for Yahweh's grace. Amen? That's very important for us to keep in mind. As the Lord will give the Torah and the laws, the, the, the judgment, it's flowing from His grace, redeeming them, loving them. And then in verses 5 through 6, we see the majestic statement, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Here's what the Lord wants as He's making this covenant with Israel. For them to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. His treasure possession. That's the goal of the Lord. Many people look here at verse 5 and 6. And they argue, they say, Oh, do you see? If you obey. If you obey. This is a conditional covenant. This is basically a covenant of works. If you obey me. But the new covenant has no ifs. We are a kingdom of priests without ifs. That's what people say. Is that, is that true? So do you see people come up with the distinction between law and gospel? That's law. There's the gospel. Is that what we see here? Is that what we see in the rest of the Bible? I invite you to go through and see the New Testament. How many ifs we have in the New Testament? We have a bunch. So for example, it's Jesus himself who says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. Do you see the conditionality here? Or in Revelation 2, 5, Jesus says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's a clear conditionality of being a kingdom of priests. If you are not faithful to me, I will remove my light from you, and you shall not be a kingdom of priests to this dark world. Or the author of Hebrews says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So, brothers and sisters, what I'm saying is, all the covenants have unconditional and conditional elements. All the covenants have grace and works. That's how God works. It's unconditional because he's the first one always to initiate a covenant. And he's always faithful to his promise. But there is also conditionality for us to experience his goodness, his faithfulness. So all the covenants, okay? That's very important to keep this in mind. And the heart, as I said, is to form Israel as a kingdom of priests. The Lord wants his people to be a kingdom Related to kingship, as we saw, the image bearers, they are images of God, of Yahweh, and they are to expand His royal character to the other places. And as priests, they are to dwell in His presence and join His smiling face upon them. And that's very similar to what Adam was. Adam and Eve, they were called to be royal priesthood. God made Adam and Eve as vice regents to enjoy his presence, a kingdom of priests. Uh, one scholar says, in all likelihood the expression a kingdom of priests implies that God intends every Israelite to have a royal and priestly status, a remarkable promise for those who were formerly slaves in Egypt. 
The Israelites shall enjoy the status that Adam and Eve had prior to their betrayal of God in the Garden of Eden. So like Adam, like Noah, like Abraham, Israel is to be God's instrument of blessing to the nations, expanding God's kingdom and mediating as priests His knowledge and presence to the dark world. Amen? Then chapter 19 comes towards the end with the Lord saying, Get ready for I'm going to meet you on the third day. Huh? On the third day, I'm going to meet you. I'm going to meet with you on the third day. And that leads to chapter 20. As he's going to give the Torah, the ten words or the ten commandments. So Exodus chapter 20. And the ten words here, we call the ten commandments... But right there, it's called the Ten Words, takes us back to Genesis and creation, where God speaks ten times. We see in Genesis 1, and God said, and God said, the creation. And here we have the ten words of Yahweh as if remaking or making Israel. So Peter Gentry and Wellam, they write, in the creation narrative, God creates the universe by by simply speaking, by His Word. In the Hebrew text, the verb... Yayomer, and he said, occurs ten times. In a very real way, the entire creation depends or hangs upon the word of God. Here, the book of the covenant is what forges Israel into a nation. It's her national constitution, so to speak. And it's also the ten words that brings the birth of the nation. Like the creation, Israel as a nation hangs upon the ten words for her very being. And the ten words are given in light of God's grace, as we saw. And it's even more clear in chapter 20, verse 2. That's important to see the background. We always think about these laws and laws and laws. But look at verse 2 of chapter 20. Look at the grace of God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I redeem you. I bought you. I brought you to myself. I'm making a covenant with you. And here's how we're going to live together. And then he gives the ten words. That's chapter 20. Chapter 21 through 23, we have what's called the judgments. Chapter 21 through 23, it's basically an expansion. Moses is expanding the Ten Commandments. Okay, so you have the Ten Words, what we call the Ten Commandments, and then the next chapters, chapter 21, 22, 23, it's expanding to different cases, those Ten Words. And that's very important for us to think, because as we think about the Mosaic Covenant and now the giving of this Book of the Covenant, the Ten Words, the Judgments, they are all together. You cannot separate them. It's one package that the Lord is giving to Israel. Most of us have uh, heard or have seen, or some here probably hold to the idea that we can divide the law into three parts. Well, let's divide the law into moral, civil, and religious, ceremonial. The problem is that doesn't take place in the Bible. Who defines what is moral? That's what I, I ask some of my teachers. I ask, so who defines what a, if a law is moral, civil, or religious? Who defines? Because we don't have that in the Bible. Then it's arbitrary. So Rick, Rick can decide that one law is moral while I think that that law is civil. But do you see in a theocracy where God is king, everything is moral, everything is civil, and everything is religious, ceremonial. So it's very important for us to not try to rip the, 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 the covenant and, and rip apart. And this, all right, so these Ten Commandments, now it's applied for the church, but not the other ones. But even the fourth commandment that we call the Sabbath command is changed. We don't keep that like under the Old Covenant. So, it's important for us to keep this in mind. The Torah, and that's the the word for what we call law, it's better translated as instruction, guidance. The Torah will instruct Israel how to walk in holiness in order to dwell with a holy God. 
I really like what Christopher Wright, he says, he writes, God gave them, Israel, his law as a gift of grace, not so that they could earn his salvation, for they had already been redeemed, but to shape them as his model people to be a light to the nations. Amen? Are you following here? We are moving fast, but that's all we need to do. Okay, we have a lot to cover here. Exodus chapter 24, the ceremony, the wedding ceremony that we have here. Uh, look at verse 3 through 4, chapter 24. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the, the Lord and all the rules. Do you see the ten words plus the rules? Chapters 20 through 23. And all the people answered with one voice and said what? I will. Just like in a wedding ceremony, as you're making your covenant vows, I will. That's what people are saying. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And then the next day, early in the morning, Moses gets up and he builds an altar. He builds an altar at the foot of Mount Sinai. And then he places 12 stones. What is he doing here? What is the altar? Think about where is God right now? Mount Sinai. The altar represents Mount Sinai. The altars throughout the scriptures, they are a picture of the mountain of the Lord where people can dwell, offer sacrifice, just like Noah was or Abraham. So you have this altar that represents Mount Sinai, and then you have the 12 stones that represent whom? Israel. Yeah, the 12 stones represent Israel. So you have just like what's taking place. You have the mountain and you have Israel. And then Moses gets the blood and what does he do? He throws the blood at the altar. And we don't know if he threw the blood at the people or the word people there is represented by the stones. So it seems like as he's in front of everybody and he has the basin with blood and here's the altar and here's the stones and he's saying that's the blood of the covenant. He's throwing the blood at the altar and at the stones that represents the people of Israel. And that blood is binding them together in a covenant relationship. Now they're brought together. The Lord, through this blood, as if it was, through this covenant, the Lord is becoming Israel's Goel, his Redeemer, the closest relative. Peter Leihart, he says, the wedding, the wedding service goes from Exodus 19 through 24. Moses is the minister officiating at the wedding. The husband's part... The husband's part of the wedding service begins with the Lord reminding his bride of what he has done for them. And goes on, when Moses brings these words to the people, they say, basically, I do. The wedding ceremony ends with a wedding reception, a feast in the Lord's presence. Verses 9 through 11. Now the Yahweh and Israel are married. What happens once you marry a person? You become one and you live together. Right? What do we have in chapter 25 of Exodus? Look at Exodus chapter 25. What is there? Come on. What is there? Building the tabernacle. Yahweh is moving to live with Israel. He's making his home now. With Israel, they're married, they're in a covenant. So you move together to live, to live with that person. That's what's taking place here. And then we have the wonderful, uh, that we read here, that wonderful scene where Moses and the leaders of Israel, they beheld God and it seemed like they didn't behold God himself, but the feet, the, the clear crystal that's under God's feet, and they beheld that, and they ate and drank in the presence of the Lord. That's beautiful. There is a meal showing communion between the parties. So it should not surprise us that the Lord Jesus institutes and talks about the new covenant as they are participating in a meal. And he gives us the Lord's Supper as a picture of a meal we are eating and drinking in the Lord's presence. Okay? Chapter 25 through 40, that's important. Now we have the 
construction of the tabernacle, instructions to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the heart of the Mosaic Covenant because the heart of the covenant is God and man dwelling together. Sadly, oftentimes we focus so much in the laws and judgments and rules and regulations that we forget that the heart of the Mosaic Covenant is the tabernacle. All those regulations and laws are so Israel can keep having God dwelling with them. Because if they start disobeying, what will happen? God will put them in exile. God will remove His presence from among them. So we see in Exodus 25, and it's beautiful how it starts. You think, for the first time since the fall, God is coming to dwell with men. And the first thing you read in, verse, in, in chapter 25 is, tell the people of Israel to bring an offering. Through offerings. He's going to build that. And then he says in verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may, what? Dwell in their midst. That's the whole purpose. God wants to dwell with them. And then the tabernacle will be following the pattern of Sinai. It's very similar to Sinai, and Sinai takes us back to creation. So what we have with the tabernacle is basically a microcosmos within Israel. And then the glory of God will cover that as a picture of what's supposed to happen with the whole cosmos as the glory of God covers the whole face of the earth. Uh, I think I have time for this. Gordon Wayne, he says, the fundamental idea embodied by the tabernacle was that it was God's earthly dwelling place. The tabernacle re resembled a royal place with, with its throne room, the Holy of Holies, right at the heart of the structure. It thus expressed the idea that the Lord was Israel's king dwelling among his people. The tabernacle's design also evoked the Garden of Eden, where God used to live harmoniously with men. The gold, the cherubim, the tree of life, the high priestly jewels, and the entrance from the east are some of the features that the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden had in common. Most obvious was the presence of God in the tabernacle as he had been in Eden. The tabernacle thus pointed to a restoration of peace between man and God that was lost in the fall. The tabernacle is the greatest blessing, the greatest privilege of the Mosaic Covenant. God is coming back to dwell with man since Genesis chapter 3. The sign of the covenant, we hear that the sign of the covenant is the Sabbath. It makes completely, complete sense to see the Sabbath as the sign of this covenant. He gives the instruction of the tabernacle on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a picture of God's reign, His kingship, and the priesthood of His creation. Why? Because He rests on the seventh day, and that was well known in, nation, in the ancient Near East world, that after the king conquered, He would rest. And we have a picture in Genesis 1 as the king conquering, forming his temple, forming his place. And then on the seventh day, he's able to do what? Enjoy that. That's what rest means, to enjoy his creation. Spend time with man in his presence. And that's exactly what he's calling Israel to be, a kingdom of priests. So they are to resemble that same thing as was in creation. The seventh day, the pictures God's reign and their priesthood. God's conquering power and then enjoying that presence with God. So it's no surprise that's the Sabbath. And then, right there, as we are starting to get ready for the building of the tabernacle, Exodus 32-34, we have a crisis. And that's a vital portion in the Mosaic Covenant. As Israel, just, just like Adam, breaks the covenant. One scholar says that it is as if Israel commits adultery on the nuptial night. That they should be together with Yahweh. What do they do? 
build us a God that will go with us. You see, they want a, the presence of God with them, not realize that God is with them, but they want something tangible. Moses, anger burned, and he threw the tablets, and he broke the tablets. What does it mean? It implies the breaking of the covenant. It's a symbol of breaking the covenant. And then, in Exodus 33, we see the heart of the threat. Look at that. The Lord says to Moses, listen to this, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up amongst you, lest I consume you on the way. The most serious threat is that the Lord will not go with them. Oh, I'll give you the land. I'll conquer the enemies for you. I'll give you the wonderful land, but I'm not going with you. And then we see Moses acting as a merciful mediator. And he says, kill me, but don't do that. But do you see, he's not a perfect mediator. Only the perfect mediator will take the place of his people. So God doesn't take his life on behalf of Israel. The Lord said to Moses, chapter 34, verse 1, after he reveals his name as merciful, full of his sad, long-suffering, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself, Exodus chapter 34, verse 1, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that, are, that were on the first tablets which you broke. And then in verse 10 says, and he said, behold, I'm making a covenant. The Lord in His mercy, in His faithfulness, in His chesed, is renewing the covenant with them. So, it's powerful because this story, these chapters here, 32 through 34, show us the reality that these people, they need a better covenant. A covenant where the Lord will circumcise their, their hearts and will cause them to be faithful to Him. So, right here we see that the Mosaic Covenant is not the end. And it's not the primary means for redemption. Okay? And then chapter 35 through 40, we get back with the construction of the tabernacle. So, after the pause, the original sin of Israel, we get back with the construction of the tabernacle. Chapters 35 through 40. And that's just amazing especially how it ends, chapter 40, the glory of God dwelling in the tabernacle for the first time since the fall, since Genesis 3, for the first time God is now dwelling with His people, abiding with them. I don't have time to cover Deuteronomy 29, but the book of Deuteronomy, especially chapter 29, is a renew of the covenant. Remember, the first generation died, and what the Lord will do now is to renew. He's not making a new covenant. He's not cutting a different covenant with Israel. It's not like there are two covenants, one at Sinai and one at Horeb. It's the same one. He's just renewing that covenant with a new generation. So, that's the book of Exodus. That's primarily the Mosaic Covenant. And there's just so much. And it starts flowing to Leviticus. As you have the Day of Atonement, and as you have rules for the priesthood. So many things. Sometimes it's easy to get lost. So I want to remind you. The heart of the Mosaic Covenant. Let me see if I have here. The heart of the Mosaic Covenant is the heart of all the covenants that we have in the Bible. It's God's relational and covenantal presence among His people. That's the heart of the Mosaic Covenant. What is the Mosaic Covenant all about? God dwelling with His people. God making a kingdom of priests. Restoring what was lost with Adam. Kings, people who are image bearers of God, and they know God because they dwell in His presence as priests, enjoying His presence. That's the goal of the Mosaic Covenant. And I hope that helps you. Because all the other books are exactly expanding this. How are people going to dwell with this holy God? How they can abide in His presence? And you see that, as we saw in Exodus 33, that's amazing, this passage. 
Listen to this, chapter 33 of Exodus, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Look at that, I'm going to conquer all of them. I will give you that wonderful land flowing with honey milk. It's going to be yours. I promise you, Abraham. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. That's amazing. And Moses knows what that is. Moses understands that having everything but not having the Lord is the same as having nothing. We, we, we can have the best land, but if the Yahweh is not present dwelling with us, we are no better than the Babylonians, than the Persians, than the Assyrians, than the Egyptians. What makes a difference is a holy God dwelling with us. That's why Moses argues and cries out, and he says, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? Look at that. It's not that your presence with us that makes us different. That's exactly what the Lord had promised in Exodus chapter 6. We saw last Lord's Day. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out of from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Sadly, so many people in church today, they want everything, all the riches that the world can give, and they care less about having the presence of the Lord in their midst, the Holy God dwell in their homes. They dwell in the house of the Lord. Michael Morales, he writes... Suffice it to say that the covenant structure driving redemptive history has one aim, for God's people to be planted on the mountain of God, so they may dwell in His house and gaze upon His beauty forever. It's moreover precisely this aim that generates all the dramatic tension in the biblical drama that plummets one into the perplexing dilemma of how a holy God can abide among a sinful people bent upon rebellion. And that lifts up the soul into the mystery of a divine love that opens that way. And that way is open ultimately through Jesus Christ. Do you see, Israel has God's presence there, but just a very select few people can enter and have that deep fellowship with the Lord. And even that deep fellowship is still covered by smoke. And what the Lord is doing is preparing through the Mosaic Covenant something much better that's about to come. Think about the tabernacle, and then you have the 12 loaves of bread, and then right underneath you have, uh, uh, right up above the, the loaves of bread, you have the lampstand, and it is the, that light is giving life to Israel, the presence of God. And yet they cannot experience that fully. It's very limited. What God is pointing through all these structures is His desire that one day He's going to bring a people to dwell with Him because He's going to dwell with His people. And that's the heart of the new covenant when Jesus comes. The goal of the Mosaic Covenant is to prepare the world for the coming of a kingly priest, the perfect Adam, the perfect Noah, the perfect Abraham, the perfect Moses, and the perfect Israel. Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us. 
Jesus, as we see in shadow and type form under the Mosaic Covenant, will bring all God's people to the Holy of Holies and cause the Holy Spirit to dwell within all God's people. That's amazing. That's what they didn't have under the Old Covenant. All these things, they're pointing to Christ. And no wonder when Christ is celebrating the Passover meal, He tells all His disciples, it's all about Me. If He was a sinful man, that would be one of the most selfish statements. But because He's God and it's all about Him, He can say, it's all about Me. This is the blood of the covenant as He gives the cup. All that was happening there was pointing to this moment here when I'm bringing you into the presence of the Father. And no wonder what happens once He dies. The curtains open. And what is that? But the access to the presence of God that they didn't have under the Old Covenant. So, as we get ready to partake of the Lord's Supper, I pray that all this truth would be truly like logs that gives more fire in our hearts to be and abide with the Lord. I think about those men who were having a meal, drinking and eating in the presence of God. Can you imagine once they came down telling their relatives and friends that they just had a meal in the presence of God and that was so unique. And yet in the Lord's Supper we do that. We do that. We have a presence. We have a meal in the presence of the Lord. Celebrating His covenant with us. And making us a kingdom of priests. Oh Lord, we stand in all of you. Your wisdom and your power throughout history. We thank you for your love towards your people. Just as you carried Israel on eagle's wings. You also have carried us on eagle's wings. You did all to redeem us. And because you have did all, out of our love towards you, we want to do all for you. We want to live wholly devoted to you, Lord. Thank you for the greatest, the greatest privilege of all, to abide in your presence and to have you abiding within us. Help us to enjoy this. As the world gets uglier and uglier, we have this beautiful promise and reality that we can always be before your smiling face because of Jesus, the true Passover lamb. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.